That jarring mix of themes, old and more recent, tells you that you're listening to the Power of Three podcast, where three lifelong, grumpy, middle-aged Doctor Who fans discuss, enthuse and occasionally criticise the televised, novelised and audio adventures of our favourite time-travelling hero. Hello from me, Tom Harris. Hello from me, David Steele. Not that David Steele. And I'm Kenny Smith. Yes, that Kenny Smith. Who's that, Kenny Smith? Is there a that, Kenny well, Smith? Well, there's actually two of us. There's one who's an American sports broadcaster, and then there's this one who was once uh, introduced on stage at a convention in Manchester by Paul Cornell as, oh no, it's Kenny Smith. <laughs> when I went on stage to take the quiz. That's my new sitcom, folks, coming soon. I take it you found out about the American sports commentator by the same way that I found out about the other Tom Harris's in the world by searching your own name on Twitter. Yeah, just out of curiosity. It's when I found my own entry in TARDISFandom.com, I was quite perplexed, but there we go. I found out there's a, there's a Tom Harris, a famous Tom Harris from Canada who's a famous climate change denier. Hi. There's a Tom Harris who is, I think, some kind of racing car driver. But I'm not either of those. Well, the um, the other David, there's a couple of other David Steels that I knew about. Obviously, as I've said many times, I was very politically aware from a very early age because the, the when I was you know in primary school age and growing up and all that, there was um a very prominent the very prominent liberal leader was um was David Steele, and I, there was a member of a member of the Specials was oh, really? called David. Steele. Yeah, he, but he spelled it he spelled it with a knee at the end, and I think, and of course, my my ignorance of sport is almost absolute. I think. I'm right in thinking there was, a, there was an English cricketer um, called David Steele as well at one point. So there we go. I just want to pull you up on something there, Dave. You mentioned sport there. Um, cricket's not sport. It's just the pastime. It's crap rounders. <laughs> people who can't play real sports. See, I always said that baseball was just rounders. That's what I call baseball. Yeah, baseball's more exciting. I can't. I can't wait till lockdown lifts and we all we all head round to the Queen's Park Recreation Ground for a game of rounders. Three of us and Poppy. It'll be great fun. Oh, what joys await us at the end of the lockdown! Right, but we're not here to talk about people with the same names or or sport. Funnily enough, imagine three Doctor Who fans talking about sport. Can you imagine it? <laughs> uh, we're here to talk about the season fourteen Blu-ray box set. What did we think of it, guys? I loved it. Season fourteen is one of my favourite seasons. It's the best, isn't it's- it? It's consistently good from start to finish. And even the stories that aren't the greatest are still very good and stand head and shoulders above, you know, even though they might be average for that season, but in any other season, they would be fantastic. It's hard to think of any other season in the classic series that was as good as season 14. I would, I would agree with that, definitely. I mean, there's a few that, as Kenny says, it's, it's, it's the proportion of, sort of solid classics. I mean, um, there's a, I think the season's on either side. Have stories which are you know very very good, but probably none you know not the whole the whole run is not as strong. Yeah, I would I would actually I'll contract myself here actually because I am so looking forward to the release of season thirteen on on Blu-ray box set because I think that for me has probably got more stories that I I, I love 
you know, uh, maybe more consistently brilliant, you know, Seeds of Doom, Brain of Morbus, Pyramids of Mars. Tell so, the Zygons. Yeah. 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 Anyway, we are agreed. It's, it's, a, it's a brilliant It's very good. But we're not going to talk about the actual stories this time. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, the, the plethora of, of uh, special extras that we've got uh, on the discs. And there are eight discs, is that right? Yep. Yes, indeed. So, Kenny, you are going to talk us through uh, something that has appeared in all of the, the box sets that have been released so far, Behind the Sofa. Uh, yes. what, exa- what exactly is Behind the Sofa? If you're a fan of Gogglebox, then you'll know exactly what it is. It's people sitting down, watching TV and commenting on it. Um, I still think the series should be called Goggle Docs, but that's obviously me in a minority. But I think it's a, a very clever idea where you get original contributors to the episodes, sitting down and watching them all these years later. As together, obviously, it's slightly different from a commentary. And then there's also some other guests who haven't seen it before, or probably haven't seen it before, giving their thoughts on with their era of Doctor Who. So in this instance, we've got Philip Hinchcliffe, Louise Jameson, and of course, Tom Baker, going through these episodes one by one. And then we've got also Sophie Aldred and Peter Purvis. So it's quite a a good mix between uh, the start of Doctor Who, the end of Doctor Who, and somewhere in the middle of Doctor Who. I have to say, I think Purvis is what actually really, really makes this particular batch of them, because he's he's such he takes he's obviously taking it so seriously. He's such a such a professional. He just reeks of sort of um, preparation and 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 being into it. I mean, the commentaries that he's done for the DVDs at various points have been really, really good. Because he, he, you know, he. He's, he's just, you know, flick of a switch and he's there. Because one thing I've found a bit irritating in some of the, the releases in other series, when I was watching the ones for season 12, when I got the reissue of that box set recently, I got a bit bored of kind of Janet Fielding and Sarah Sutton just kind of laughing all the way through it, you know. So it was, it was interesting that, that Purvis and Sophie together were like, you know, they were taking it seriously and, you know, to try, so that they're, you know, presumably so that they can try and contribute something interesting to the discourse, you know. Yeah, totally. I, I totally agree with you with the comments about Janet Fielding and Sarah Sutton. I thought they didn't add an awful lot to the the, the commentary on the on season twelve at all. I mean, it's it's funny to a point, but it, the kind of novelty of it wears off, and you wish it they you know they were just kind of I don't know. And I don't want to I don't want to sound like a crying Doctor Who fan that insists that it should all be taken seriously. That's not what I mean. But it's it's fine when Janet's doing. It was fine on season 19 when Janet and Sarah and Peter and Matthew were watching their own stories. That was fine because, you know, they were in them. They could rip the mickey. And, you know, the other folk were, that, that were there were sort of talking about it. I think it was, was it, uh, I want to say Mark Strix and Sophie Aldred. I can't remember if that's right. But it's just Purvis, though. He's a, he's, he's a legend. Yeah. It should be called, of course, On the Sofa. Because nobody's behind the sofa. They're all on the sofa. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the very pedantic podcast. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to ask all. I'm going to ask the both of you to uh, tell us what your favourite extra from this box set is. Uh, we'll each name our favourite particular feature, and then we'll go back and look at uh, the rest of them. So, Davy, do you have a particular feature that you'd recommend to listeners? Yes, definitely. My my favourite feature. Um, I mean, as usual, it's an embarrassment of riches. There's there's so much good stuff. Um, my favourite thing on the new set is the um, is the vintage episode of Call My Bluff, which was the old BBC Two panel game 
Um, I think very similar to something that which I think is going now called Would I Lie to You, when a famous person gives a definition of a word, or the three famous people on the panel give a definition of a word, and the other team have to guess who's telling the truth or who's bluffing. And this is an old one from way back that has Tom Baker as a guest. And it's and and Miriam Stoppard, which is absolutely hilarious. But maybe come back to that. But no, that was my favourite. I've watched that one yet. I'm going to have to look at it. Same here. It's a lovely little capsule piece. You know, it's sort of um very nostalgic. I mean, I used to quite used to watch Call My Bluff quite often when I was younger. So it was it was it was nice. It just reminded me of a gentle time. And you know, Gabrielle Drake is one of the other guests, and she she looks wonderful. Um, you know, you might know her as Gay Ellis in um in UFO and she was in Crossroads for a while too, I believe. Um but but you know, Miriam Stoppard one of the I fancied her. people. Of course you did. Um there was, there, was very, there was something very creepy there when you were talking there, Dave, and then yeah. Kenny came on in a very low, rasping voice <laughs> saying, I fancied her. Very <laughs> much, very much in the stalker mode there, Kenny. Yeah, funny that. <laughs> well, she's, no, she's but, a bit older than me, so I'll let her go this time. But Miriam stopped. Kenny, just stop, honestly. <laughs> and when he Miriam says let her go, he literally means unlocking the cupboard and cutting the uh-huh. rope. Yeah, Kenny the Collector. <laughs> Miriam Stoppard is one of those people that used to pop up on television for no other reason than just the fact that she was Dr. Miriam Stoppard. I've got loads of memories of her being on TV AM in the 80s for yeah. some reason. But anyway, so yeah, you should watch Call My Bluff because it's brilliant. Okay, I will do that. I will do. Kenny, what's your favourite extra? Well, my favourite extra is the revisitation of Who's Doctor Who. I absolutely loved the original documentary. The first time I saw it was back in 1990 when BSB did their Doctor Who weekend when they showed lots of classic episodes, including The Edge of Destruction, The Wrong Way Around. So you had the brink of disaster, first of all, and you had no idea what the hell was going on. But the thing was, it took me about 12 minutes to realise that, hang on, this isn't right. Anyway, I first saw the documentary that weekend, and it was a fascinating insight. So we're all used to DVD extras and behind the scenes and so on these days. But here was our first look at the making of a Doctor Who story back in the 70s as we watched Walk into Talons, getting to see rehearsals. Tom Baker getting to play foosball with Deep Roy um, and just, you know, Robert Holmes talking, Philip Hinchcliffe at the time. And it's just an absolutely fascinating insight, a real time capsule piece. And then, of course, to go and top it, we go and visit some of the interviewees that appeared in the original programme as they are now. We get to go to Newcastle to visit Casper Hewitt's now all grown up and still very dapper. You may remember him from the original one, he's wearing a pinstripe suit. And here he is now, a proper academic, a real doctor, and uh, still with his love of Doctor Who, which he's shared with his family. And we go around to meet some of the interviews, interviewees and get to see what they've been up to in the intervening years. And of course, there's a hint of sadness when we find out that one of the participants died when she was quite young in her 20s, which is has a real poignancy to it as well so you realize that well doctor who lives on and carries on we've lost one young fan but the incredible thing is that who's doctor who almost serves as a time capsule where she's forever there as a as a happy smiling nine-year-old who who loves her doctor who and it's obviously a nice piece for her her surviving families to be able to watch that she may not be in their lives now but they can still always have that little bit of her when she was 
a happy young thing watching Doctor Who and it made her, made her smile. It's very poignant because Toby Haydock, as always, gets to do some first class interviews and he is just an absolute gem. He knows how to talk to people, how to get anecdotes out of them and he's and as a, as a good warm human being. He empathises completely and he's, he's wonderful. The anecdotes he brings from them are great and just makes it such a heartwarming piece, particularly when we get three of the classmates brought back together again at the end to have a discussion and, uh, and a, a laugh when they go back to the old school where the original documentary was recorded. And um, oh, I enjoyed it very, very much. It's, it's a very, very clever piece, I think, from Chris Chapman as the producer, director, and Toby as presenter. And I did send Toby a text to say what a great job he'd done on it. It, was, it, was, it has to be remarked on as one of the the most surprising documentaries was actually quite moving in its own way, which you wouldn't expect it to be. You're right about the way Toby dealt with that family, with the, who'd lost the, the young girl. And Carol, my wife, was watching it with me, and she said what I was thinking was that his comments about how fandom, not just him, but the whole of Doctor Who fandom, uh, were aware of the girl's contribution, and that that was appreciated throughout the whole of Doctor Who fandom. And I just thought that saying that, first of all, it's true. Second of all, it was a lovely thing to say to the, the mother, who's a lot older now, obviously, and to her sister. Mm -hmm. And it was such a thoughtful, sensitive thing to do. I just thought I loved Toby for that. He's, he's the only person that really can that can handle that sort of stuff because he, he did that feature about Peter Newman, the guy that wrote the censor rights a couple of years ago, and he, he's 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 just it's he has an element of tact. He just he's as Kenny put it, his empathy's total. He's, he's he's an absolute prince among men, Miss Toby, and I don't think anyone else would have been able to to handle the range of of you know, I suppose topics and emotions that that you know this program talks about. I mean, it's it's interesting seeing um philip hinchcliffe and tony cash sort of you know reminiscing and talking about it it's, it's really funny seeing the the school kids getting being you know being interviewed with toby and, and just discussing but he had when he talks to the family who lost a little girl i mean it, it's the sort of thing that could and, I'll, and I'll, I'll come back to this when we talk about one of the other features it's the sort of thing that if it had been handled differently it could have come over as you know awkward intrusive but toby he does it in such a way that um that's just not the case it is very very well done yeah, yeah. The coda to it is superb as well when it's when the credits have all rolled and then we finally get to hear the mum do her ice warrior impression after all these years. I loved that. It was an upbeat ending. Yeah, that was great. My own favourite, um, and this is where I will get modelling, is the tribute to Elizabeth Sladen because obviously when, uh, you know, some of the stories from this season were released on DVD. They were released before Liz died in 2011. So we didn't get the chance to, you know, pay tribute to her at that point. And this has been a brand new documentary that's been included in this, this box set. And it was brilliant. I mean, it's, a, it's an hour and 15 minutes long. It's a real in-depth look, not just at Doctor Who years, but, you know, in her life before and after Doctor Who. And uh, Sadie, her daughter, obviously, who has appeared on on behind, behind the sofa in, in previous box sets, she you know does quite a lot of interviews to camera, and there's a lot of home footage of of Liz Slayton talking about her time in Doctor Who. 
but it was just it was well. First of all, it was fascinating to to find out more about her background, and her early life, and her early acting roles. What was what staggered me was that she was the second actor cast to play Sarah Jane Smith. I mean, this is earth shattering. Oh, did, did you not know that? I did not know that. This is April Walker, who's who's just recently, I think, has uh, announced. Well, um, her, her, yeah. I mean, that's- this emerged a few years ago. Barry Letts apparently was on stage and made this kind of throwaway comment to how Lizzie wasn't the first person cast and yeah. people were kind of, well, hang on. And I think it was the, I remember now, I think it was the Invasion of the Dinosaurs, buried away in the information text, Invasion of the Dinosaurs, when that came out on DVD, that this was who it was. And she's, she's quite visible in episodes, some episodes of the two Ronnies apparently, but they just felt that the dynamic between her and Johnsy wasn't quite right. Um, she was a little, a, little too, a little too tall, a little too old. You know, they they felt it was maybe a sort of um maybe too much of a you know a pr- too a little too professional you know whereas Lizzie was obviously a bit more the girl next door. Yeah, the whole story was uh, it was in nothing at the end of the line. It was Richard Bignall who discovered it, uh, yeah. looking through the contract stuff, and she did other work for the BBC throughout the year to cover the twenty six or twenty four episode contract, whichever it was, um, to cover that period of the contract. Anyway, that was that was news to me, um, and I, and I yeah. was really thinking, well, thank goodness that they made that decision. I mean, I had no disrespect to Heather Walker, and I feel sorry for her, but you know, you can imagine life and Doctor Who without Liz Sladen doesn't be thinking about. Absolutely. And and it just, I mean, of course, everything you watch an episode of Doctor Who with, with, with uh, Liz Sladen in it, you're reminded of how wonderful she actually was. But you know, to have that documentary put together and to have all of her friends and colleagues that she worked with talk about what it was like to work with her. Obviously, we were all sad when, when it was announced in 2011 that she died, but watching that part of the documentary again, and particularly when Tom Baker speaks to the camera and his voice cracks when he talks about how he felt when he heard that she died, I was just in floods at that point. I think it, it, it affects me more, I think, when I see other people reacting to grief. I think that's what sets me going, not so much the actual news because I didn't know her, but when I see Tom Baker uh, cracking up, I mean, I just, that, that is quite difficult to watch, but it is a wonderful, really sensitive, well-researched, well-put-together documentary. You see, I mean, that's, that's what I was referring to a second ago and I felt that the, um, the Who's Doctor Who thing was handled very well. I was a little uncomfortable. Yeah. I can't lie. Watching Tom just in such a you know, Tom Baker, I mean, obviously not our Tom, in such, you know, in a, sta- in, a, in a state of distress. I mean, I thought I could have, I felt it was a little bit intrusive seeing him so visibly upset and I can understand why they would want to show it. Um, I don't I don't think it was considered, I don't think it was done for exploitative reasons. I just felt it was a little intrusive. I sort of thought, yeah. no, this, is a, this is a very elderly man who is remembering a friend who was younger than him and who's been dead for a while. I mean, there's there's all sorts of, implications there about you know about grief and loss and all that sort of thing and I felt it, it was I felt uh, I maybe would have left that as a voiceover mm. from Tom over a, a, couple, a little montage of them rather than sort of showing it it was an obvious desire I suppose to sort of show that the genuine sort of feeling that, that he had and stuff but I just felt mm, maybe maybe not yeah what do you guys think of that I mean do you think do you disagree with me or I think it's. I think it's moving. I think it shows you how much Tom cared. I think that's the. That's that's how it came across. Oh yeah, me. definitely. I'm. I'm not. I'm not disputing that at all. I mean, it was. It was obvious throughout. But I just felt that. I mean, how old's Tom now? Eighty odd. Eighty five. Tom is eighty six. Eighty six. I'd seen 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 someone of that age just 
you know, I don't know, I just felt it was a bit off. I think you've got a point, I must admit, I think you have a point. Yeah. But at the same time, I think the you know, this, this documentary is really only going to be watched by the Doctor Who community. And I yeah. think for the whole community, Liz Layden's death was felt quite deeply by the community because we, although most has never met her, we, we knew her, we felt that we knew her. So to see somebody that we revere, you know, express his feelings so strongly, I think that's kind of cathartic. And I, and I don't think it was really, I can see why you might think it was intrusive. I don't think it was because I think it was almost like a family um, bereavement. Oh, yeah, definitely. Absolutely. I mean, and the worst, and, you know, this, when Lizzie died less than a year after my, my dad died, and you know, and I remember at the time one of my colleagues at HMV making a really off-colour attempt at a joke, saying, "Oh, there'll be no series of Sarah Jane Smith this year." Then, oh, and I remember wanting to knock him out, yeah. <laughs> complaining and saying, "Listen, you know, uh, someone's you know, this is about eight months after I lost my dad from cancer. You know, like, just <laughs> get a grip of yourself, man." And it was, it was so. Because, you know, as I think everyone sort of agrees that Sarah Jane is, is up there. She's probably, you know, she's the best. She's, you know, undoubtedly she's the archetypal Doctor Who companion. And the fact that she crossed the generations from the original series and then came back and there was an episode with Davey and then with Matt, it was, it was devastating. It was like, it was, it was so sad. Did either of you um, read her autobiography? I've bought it, I've it but never read it. <laughs> right, right. What, what you said? It's very, I mean, it's, it's excellent. It's, it's very, very good. I mean, I, I would recommend it. Give it, a, give it a shot, definitely. I mean, um, I remember sort of reading that, and it's very interesting getting much more of her own point of view about her life and her career and all that sort of thing. And the, the documentary in the Blu-ray touches on a lot of that as well. But it, doesn't, but it doesn't really drag stuff up or repeat stuff that, that, that Lizzie says in the book. Really stro- strong agree with what you're saying there, Tom, about it feeling like a family bereavement, because she, you know, she's everyone's Sarah Jane, wasn't she? You know, we all, we all loved her, and it was... It was horrible, and of course, Nicholas Courtney died around about the same time, and it was it was horrible. I've always thought it would be a nice idea for us to do an episode uh, that looked at three autobiographies or biographies of major stars from Doctor Who. Maybe we should have a think about that at some point. Oh, I definitely. What other? Let's look at some of the other um, special features on this box set. Uh, anyone got a particular one they want to talk about? Have you both had the chance to watch the, the interview with Deep Roy? Yes, that is wonderful. Wasn't it? Wasn't he lovely? He just, you know, I, I could have, I was, I wish it could have been another 20 minutes longer. You know, he was, he was fascinating. It was really, really interesting See, seeing him talking about all the jobs that he'd had and all the places he'd been, all the stuff he'd worked on. And his dad jokes were hilarious. He was brilliant. Oh, brilliant. He's very much, Deep Roy brought me deep joy. <laughs> I was just going to say the Deep Roy thing was tremendous, but the um the nationwide clip was fascinating as well. I hadn't seen that before. That was one of the other new features. Um, that's another thing I love. I love the old archive clips, like like Call My Bluff. The stuff, the the context stuff from the time is just brilliant. I really enjoyed the Philip Hinchcliffe interview, an extended interview. There have been interviews with him before on, on DVD extras. I thought this once again. There's another hour and seventeen minutes or something. I thought mm. it was it was. As fascinating as always, because he is a good interviewer, or a good interviewee. I thought some of his insights were just brilliant to, to listen to. The one criticism I have is, has you ever heard of the expression, comb over? <laughs> Bobby Charlton. It is the worst I've ever seen, actually. I mean, there's, there's no shame in going bald at that age, Philip. Come on. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, come on. 
Philip Pinchcliffe's Como over would be a great name for a band, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, that's the name of our band. <laughs> yeah, we're forming the band. What was really fascinating for me was because there's always been a controversy over the consequences of Deadly Assassin, in particular that yes. the cliffhanger where the Doctor's being drowned. And in one version I, I read, it was very explicit that Hinchcliffe was moved on because of the furore resulted from Mary Whitehouse's intervention at that stage. Yeah. But other times, in fact, I'm sure I've even heard Philip Hinchcliffe say that that had no impact on his career. But he says, he makes it quite clear in this interview that it was quite possible, I think is the way he puts it, that he was not given the option of remaining for another season when he expected to. And he puts that down to, to Mary Whitehouse. I thought he was being quite tactful at that point. It was yeah. interesting, like he, he almost felt like he, was, he didn't want to commit himself to saying something that might have, I don't know, maybe ruffled feathers or, yeah, or gave right. like something. Yeah, but it was, it was very interesting. Um, Matthew Squeak, Matthew, Matthew Squeak, <laughs> Matthew, Squeak <laughs> Matthew Sweet, he's quite good at these sort of interviews. He's, um, he's, good, he's very good at sort of coaxing without being too, again, to use another word we've already said today, he's, not very, he's good at not being intrusive. I wish sometimes he was a little... A little bit more. I mean, this is this is me being the pedantic old old grumpy Doctor Who fan who has read everything and seen everything already. So sometimes the questions are a little, are, are a little bit broadly generic, and I sort of think it'd be nice to go a bit specific. But I suppose you have to think be be realistic and think about what a person's recall is going to be forty odd years after the event, and also we've got to be aware that the target, you know, the the fan audience aren't the only audience. You know, there's yeah. going to be other people that are going to watch it. No, I I am um, I really like Philip Hinchcliffe. I met Philip back in around two thousand when he was doing the Rebus press launch for STV, and he was very very interesting to chat to. Just about TV production, so passionate about it. He was the then head of STV drama up here, and was dividing right. his time between Glasgow and London. He was fascinating just to to chat to him about the insights and of course at the end I did have to admit uh, which TV program I was a big fan of and that was the day that I'd bought the Jeffrey Bergen Doctor Who soundtrack CD and I got him to sign it after I'd finished my interview so always the professional but yes what what you're saying about uh, Matthew Sweet I think is a wonderful interview he's very very laid back quite debonair and just um breezy about it without um he gets there without having to ask the direct questions he leads it in a good in a good way which uh, tom you you and i know from our days of interviewing as journalists that it's it's not always easy it can be it can be quite difficult sometimes to get people to where you want them to be but with a gentle bit of coaxing a bit of persuading you'll get there in the end indeed one of the other things obviously um that's good about this set is they've um they've added a couple of the the audio Sort of adventures from the seventies, so it was quite good. To, it's quite nice to have the pescatons. I got it out from the library when I was a kid. When I was probably about fourteen, thirteen, fourteen, maybe a bit younger. But it was interesting giving that another little spin because obviously Lizzie's not in it very much, and there's a, there's a sense I think it's been said many times that because Victor Pemberton wrote it, it feels a bit maybe feels a bit more like Troughton than Tom. But I love the bit in the zoo. Very exciting. It's um, it's quite visceral. I think even though it's it's not a proper sort of Hinchcliffe story, it's very a uh, Definitely a Hinchcliffe era story. The creature shuffled its way across the deserted grounds of the London Zoo. Its strength gradually declined. For like any fish out of water, it couldn't hope to survive Earth's atmosphere for more than a few hours at a time. But the pescaton threat was far from over. And if it was to be destroyed, 
the creature had to be denied access to anything that would help to reactivate its main organic system. But time was running out for the pescaton. The creature slumped to the ground and lay there like some prehistoric monster, its heart pulsating until gradually fading to silence. I particularly like the doctor playing the piccolo and singing Hello Dolly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, that's what I mean. It's like, you know, you can imagine obviously maybe the second doctor playing his recorder. Maybe that's what Victor had in, had in mind, IDK. That's okay. a, um, it's a nice, a nice little, what's the word, artifact? Is that the word? Yeah. Was this the first original audio adventure for Doctor Who? That is available, yes, because there were, of course, Peter Cushing, he recorded a radio serial in the 60s. Um, he recorded a pilot. Script, I, don't yeah. think they, I don't think they actually went to a series. But and the I, script I'm, exists, but not the episode. Yeah, I'm, I'm unconvinced that that ever actually happened. I don't know until it turns up. You know, I've, I've read all the paperwork and stuff about it and... You know, it's um, it's fascinating. It's a fascinating idea. And I think it was, I think it was the first. I mean, I'm not sure if Exploration Earth came before it or after it. Well, talking of Exploration Earth, Kenny. Yes, it's always been a bit of a curiosity, as I had never heard this until it was reissued in the, in the 90s. I think it was late 90s, early 2000s, on a BBC CD. So it was quite a bit of a quirky one because it been one that somehow I'd never laid ears upon before. You know, I'd heard soundtracks to the likes of the Highlanders, the Macra Terror, but never something that was officially released by the Beeb at one point. So yes, it was quite a quite an unusual one because it feels nothing like a Doctor Who story at all, as the Doctor and Sarah escape in the the TARDIS survey pod thing and go to have a look at Earth being formed. No mention of Rachnos either, and um, it's quite a it's quite a very bizarre snippet. I think it's very much a case of we need to try and engage the kids in some science, so we'll just stick Dr. Jane in it to get them there. But, Tom. Yes. I've got a joke for you. I do right. very much, but carry on. What's the best story in which to appreciate the music of an English new wave band? Um, if, I, if I had 10 minutes to think about this, I would probably come up with the answer. Yeah, I'm going to try and get this. Hold on. Uh, see, I'm now trying to think. Spandau Ballet, Duran Duran. Was there a Doctor Who name there somewhere? I, uh, Blondie, I don't know the answer. We're wasting actual yeah. seconds of our life trying <laughs> to put, you, <laughs> put like you out of your misery. I doubt that, but carry on. You really do need to appreciate the talents of Wang Chung. That didn't go down well. I really enjoyed the Tom Baker interview on uh, Birmingham Local Radio that was actually scheduled to publicise the Pescatots. Uh, and it's, I think it's nearly an hour. So, you know, some of the, the, the extras on this are really substantial. They're really, you know, they've put a lot of effort and a lot of value into this in this box. Definitely. Um, and, and it's really interesting. This is a, an interview that was recorded in 1976, I during the, the filming of Hand of Fear. And, uh, you know, it's got Tom Baker in a studio with just one other guy, the DJ. And it is, it is it's, you know, it's, it doesn't shed an awful lot of light on, you know, it doesn't tell us an awful lot that we didn't already know. But it's really interesting because 
it's contemporaneous and so we can hear what Tom Baker was thinking and feeling at the time he was actually playing the Doctor uh, during the Hand of Fear and he's got some really sweet anecdotes in it. He talks about, you know, Baker was already always known for being very open to kids you know, who were fans, you know, younger kids as well as older ones and he says at one point the older kids are the ones that are shy, the younger ones he says are they're very intimate with you when you first meet them. And he said, one young boy said to him, as soon as he met him, do you want to come out and play with me? And another, I know, and another wee boy, uh, Tom said to him, so how old are you? And the wee boy said, I'm four and a half. And Tom said, and what's it like being four and a half? And the wee boy said, oh, it's lovely. And Tom said, how long have you been four and a half? And the wee boy said, oh, two or three years. <laughs> um, and of course, love it. The language that they use in this, you remember, this is the mid to late 70s. So some of the language, I'm sure there are millennials out there who are, even as we speak, writing a furious email to someone or other because they've been offended by the language in it. So, for example, Baker talks about how he was probably regarded as a bit of a fairy because he wanted to go into acting rather than into labouring. You know, and, and you watch it now and you're like, oh, God, Tom, don't say that. <laughs> um, and, and even though know, he was saying that all the profits for Pescatons was going to a charity and the DJ asked him what charity it was and he said, the spastics. Uh, and, and that's fine because that's what the yep. society was called at that time. But now, oh, you know, 40 years on, yep, it, long before it, it was enabled. It jars a bit. Uh, but yeah. it's worth listening to it. So it's a really interesting uh, little snippet from Doctor Who history. I think particularly the fact that the DJ is a fan, which definitely helps. Yes. It's really, really interesting. Obviously, he knows what he's talking about. But the, also, the other great wee things about in there are the radio adverts and the wee jing. Yeah, yeah. Goals that pop up, like meet down Jimmy's Butchers. That is brilliant. Yeah. I've not listened to it yet, but I think I'll maybe, maybe do it tonight and I'll make my tea. I think you've convinced me. I think I, I think I just missed it completely. Actually, I think I had registered on me that that was something that was there. It's an embarrassment of riches. This set, it really is, isn't it? Yes, it's fantastic. You know, as, as well as the stories themselves. I mean, right, so let, let's each pick our top three stories from from season fourteen. Then, before we do, that's a good idea. But before we do that, and that, we're all going to pick the same story, by the way, <laughs> or or else we are wrong. <laughs> the one one caveat I'm going to put into all this about the, the excellent uh, range of, of DVD extras or Blu-ray extras is it's a little bit depressing and discouraging because you look at the extras and you think so much work and research and love has gone into this box set and you know that that takes time and a lot of time and a lot of effort and that's why we're not having one of these box sets produced every month because they're not just churning them out, they're taking their time, they're making them the definitive collections. And that's great. But I am impatient. And I want everything to be released on these similar size uh, Blu-ray box sets as soon as possible. And I know they can't be. But when I look at the extras and I think that's wonderful. And then I realise why they're taking so long. So it's, it's just a little bit dampening down of your expectations because they've done such a good job. Well, hopefully, I think we're going to get one more this year because of the COVID situation. I believe that one more will be released. Do you know what season it is? I believe it's season 20. Yeah, I'd seen, I'd seen a tweet and a side and a, a tweet that kind of, from, I won't say from whom, that kind of made reference to, to a particular company 
And I went, oh, I wonder if that means. When I, I do sort of wonder, though, because obviously stuff like Behind the Sofa involves getting actors in together in a studio. I wonder, I mean, I've no idea how much they, how far in, in advance they film them. When I, um, when I bumped into John Levine in Salisbury last year, I, um, I did ask him if he was working on anything. And he indicated that very recently, within the last week, he'd done the, the, um, the Behind the Sofas for season 10. And I think that was about four or five months before season 10 was released. So I've no idea, pure speculation, what their preparation time is and if they'd made any advance at all on, on working on it. It'll be interesting to see if we get anything else this year. But of course, the, I think Fury from the Deep animation is still due out this year, isn't it? So there's, yeah. that, there's that to look forward to. Before we talk about a favourite stories from this season what would be your number one preference for a similar blu-ray box set presentation that hasn't already been released season two no question uh, i think it'd be fascinating to obviously we've got telly snaps can complete um the crusade with its two missing episodes that's uh, you, mis- you misunderstood my question i'm talking would... about realistically Given that the earliest they're going to do these, I think, is probably season 10. No, I think you can get away with season, season 9, I think you can get away with. There's not too much Sorry. restoration compared to others. No. There's been a lot of speculation online about, about how they're going to handle this, the, 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 um, the 60s series. And obviously, as Kenny says, there's only two episodes missing from season 2. So I think that's probably the most likely Hartman one that we'd get. On a level, I want to say season 24, because I know there was a lot of potential bonus material that wasn't released on DVD because they didn't put it on because they... They knew it wasn't going to sell as well as a lot of other stuff. You know, there's a lot of 1987 vintage stuff that I would like to see as a fan of that season. I would really quite like to see um, season 21, I think, or maybe maybe season 11. Yeah, season 11 is my preference because I want to see new special effects for the dinosaurs. Definitely. Maybe maybe even well, they probably wouldn't do this. Replace the spiders, would they? Um, I like the spiders. Spiders are fine. Yeah. If I can't have season two, then my choice is season 17. Yeah, that would probably be the next Tom series that I would want to think, actually. So let's go on to the finale of this podcast. Tell me, Kenny, which of the uh, adventures in this is your favourite? And before you do, can you just run through for listeners who may not know exactly what we're talking about? Give us a list, a rundown of all of the stories in season 14. Sure, Tom. Well, season 14 opens with the Maskum and Dragora. Which goes back to Renaissance Italy before we go to the Hand of Fear, where the Doctor land in a quarry, where they encounter a Hand of Fear. Oh, God. But then it's farewell, Sarah Jane, as she stays behind, and off we go to Gallifrey where the Doctor returns home for the first time in a while and finds that things are not very good because there was an assassin who was deadly. <laughs> then, the you're not, off you're not one to Oh, not at all. <laughs> then it's off to face the face of evil, where we encounter Leela for the first time with the Seven Team and the Tesh. And then we go to meet the Robots of Death, where there are some robots who are killing people. Surprise, surprise. And then we conclude with the Talons. Hope we're ready to shred your flesh, humans. 
So out of that lot, my favourite is Talons. Yeah, this is going to be dull because that's my favourite as well. Davey? Robots of Death is my favourite. Oh, fair enough. But, but I was going to say, as I say, if we were going to do, if we were going to do a top three, it would be Robots, Talons and Deadly Assassins. With very little that's between my three. What, what would your three be, Tom? Probably Robots, Wei Chiang. Yeah, probably, probably the same three, actually. Interesting. It just shows you they're so good, but I mean, it really is hard. I mean, yes, they're the standouts, but all the other ones that are, I mean, they're even, you know, people viewed Face of Evil and The Hand of Fear as the weak ones in the season, even still get fantastic, memorable moments. Yeah. Some great iconography that sticks in the mind as well. Tom, Tom's face in the cliff, and you've got just the whole um, Sarah Jane finding the hand in the quarry. It's, it's very much iconic imagery that sticks yeah. in the mind. You two uh, will undoubtedly have already been aware of this, but another revelation for me from the Philip Hinchcliffe interview was that the original intention was for the protagonist in Talons of Wang Chang to have been the master. Um, and I didn't know that. I'm sure you two did. Oh, really? Um, yeah. And it was because they made it Magnus Grill. But I recall on its first broadcast, and even when it was first broadcast, me and my friend, Bren, who were, were both big fans, even then we could tell this was a class apart. You know, sometimes you would recognise something as being brilliant after the event, but when Talons of Wainshire was on, we just knew this was just phenomenal. And we were both speculating madly that it was the master. You know, the, 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 there was a TARDIS, there, were, you know, there was clearly a guy with a mask. We just thought... This is bound to be the same character who was in Deadly Assassin. And we were a bit, the only disappointing thing about Talons, apart from obviously the rat, um, was, was the fact that it turned out not to be the master because we were really expecting that to be the case. But. Yeah, I think you're right. It would have been, I don't think it would have done any harm at all. Hinchcliffe well, admits, admits in the interview that he made a mistake by not making it the master, which is really interesting. Yeah. I think following obviously on so soon from, um, the Deadly Assassin, it would have rounded the series out nicely. Yeah. It's interesting, I've not really mentioned, but season four, this is the season I have the first memory of. The first memory of, of really, you know, I was, what, four when it was going out? So I remember, I always talk about Deadly Assassin as the story I remember first because, you know, I remember the repeat and all, but I, you know, locked in my head many images from the Deadly Assassin and Robots of Death and Talons of Wenchang especially. And I, I remember seeing the the novelisation of Talons on Salem, and Woolworths and Paisley and, you know, recognising the rat and Mr. Sin and, um, you know, genuine sort of behind the sofa moments from a lot of these stories when I was very young. I, which just ties in from what we were saying about it being, you know, just so iconic, you know, it's, it's, um, it's been a lot of fun watching, watching it all again, you know, because it really is, it's, it's definitely, you know, golden age stuff, you know, it's, it really is. Yeah, no doubt. What did we think about the new special effects in Talons? I thought they were excellent. I've not, I've not watched it. Oh man, that was that was probably one of the first things I did. The um, the cliffhanger in the part one is just, and the one when the, the rat attacks Louise, they're just um, they're raised. They 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 so are. They um, when the rat is sort of running down the, the sewer towards them and they start backing away, it's it's much much more effective. I mean, I didn't mind the old rat too much. You know, I was prepared to make the the leap of imagination, but the new one is it's it's another it's a really good job. Okay. Well, look, that kind of winds things up as far as season 14 box set is concerned. Well, the last bit of business we have for this episode is to 
reveal the poll that we put onto our website a few weeks ago, asking listeners to vote for their favourite Cyberman story so that we could use those results to decide which three Cybermen stories we were actually going to look at. And the result is... going to be announced in the next episode. So in the meantime... No! Yeah, yeah, there we are. In the meantime, it's from me, Tom Harris. Goodbye. From me, David Steele. Goodbye and take care. And from me, Kenny, stay safe. Look out for giant rats. (laughs) 